0: Hello, and welcome to This Human Business, an expression of the growing movement of professionals seeking to reassert the role of uniquely human contributions to business. This movement has formed in reaction against the idea that all innovation means technological development, that we've reached the end of human ability and now need to seek a transcendence of our humanity through digital technology. That's a belief that has dominated business culture this century. As a cultural belief, however, simple technophilia is just a narrow entryway into a broader range of ideas available to the digital revolution. One thing holding back Silicon Valley from a fuller exploration of these possibilities is that the new digital business orthodoxy has been positioned by their advocates, not as a set of beliefs, but as a collection of facts that are beyond debate. The gurus of Silicon Valley spin wonderful yarns about the future and then get tangled up in those yarns so tightly that they come to believe the future they have predicted is already here. It's hard to forget, given this zeal, that there is not yet any true artificial intelligence. The singularity has not yet happened, hasn't even appeared on the horizon, and in fact may never occur. No one has yet transcended humanity. Let's lay one claim to rest. The people of Silicon Valley are not beings of pure rationality they are as grounded in culture as the rest of us. Their forecasts of the future are simply new mythologies, full of potent metaphors. They can code and quantify all they like. But the people who work in big tech still can't help but remain human. So, the movement for an increased role in humanity and business isn't a Luddite rejection of technology. It's an effort to bring the roles of automation and humanity back into a mutually respectful balance. This episode of This Human Business focuses on the effort to restore this balance, and there's a long way to go. It isn't just a matter of protecting our jobs from robots. As the ideological power of the digital industry increases, we find ourselves asking questions that a few years ago would have seemed ridiculous. Prime among these questions, what is the point of being a human anymore? So I want to introduce you to a human being, uh, to Andy Acaster, a researcher in commercial culture whom I've collaborated with many times over the years. Uh, The first thing you need to know about Andy is that he's one of the most thoughtful, sensitive people you will ever meet. He puts real soul into his work. Nonetheless, when I spoke to Andy recently, he told me that he worries he's become like a robot in his work. Andy moved into the business world after leaving a career in counseling, and the course that he took in that journey seems to parallel a larger journey that humanity as a whole may be taking as we accept the presence of more and more technology in our professional
1: lives. Is that terrible? I'm like a robot.
0: What (laughs) makes you say you're like a robot?
1: Because uh, the thing that's the most human element of the the field that I had chosen uh, is the thing that at its core was that, that shook me the most, so. I feel like I've maybe moved away from that depth of true kind of like human striving work hmm. um, and, and then it maybe sometimes it feels like I've landed quite comfortably in the realm of the more superficial or aspirational elements
2: you feel of, of the way? human
1: experience sometimes yeah I think I sometimes long for a little bit deeper connection there's a part of me that still very much loves people and is very motivated by connecting with people and wants the best for people and I feel like we get flashes of being able to uncover some of that or I get to leverage some of that at least in the work that we do it's probably a part of what makes me as marginally successful as I have been with it sometimes I I wish maybe for a chance to go a little bit more right to have some follow-up with people and really kind of be invested a little bit more again I think this is one of the hardest aspects of living as a human in our world is we learn most in the mess, we learn most in the chaos, we thrive the most whenever we are a tad bit upended, or significantly upended, either one, when we are upended. And I think that the business model itself is always about sort of guarding and girding against that sort of mess and that sort of chaos, right? We have to deliver a deliverable, we have to have a clear-cut objective, We have to stick with our timeline and make sure that fiduciary contracts are upheld, right? And that's all about keeping the thing on the rails. Whereas I think if we had the chance to be a little bit more messy, we might be, maybe in a business setting, we could get a little bit more deep, deep that way. I don't know. Humanity and technology in particular, learn to be strange bedfellows with one another in very intimate ways. There's a
0: conflict represented by Andy's experience. The most true, and most useful experiences in our lives come when we're most vulnerable, but being vulnerable is terrifying. So, we often find ourselves striving for intimacy in a world of increasingly facile business transactions. We run away from human vulnerability into the cold but secure arms of digital technology. The most pressing concern expressed by business professionals these days isn't really that robots will take away our jobs. For most of us, that threat is still a few years away. The pressing concern that we face right now is that digital technology is already forcing human beings to become more robotic in the way that we work. It's a profound identity crisis that we're going through to have come to the point where we wonder what the point of human effort is anymore. The strangeness of it all is represented by that gatekeeper's code that many of us are now confronted with several times a day, thanks to CAPTCHA, the phrase, I am not a robot. We ought not to take lightly the irony that this is a robotic algorithm that tests our humanity and one that is routinely fooled by other robots. We have to prove to robots that we are not robots in order to gain access to robotic systems that take advantage of our humanity. This disorientation that results from this crisis came around full circle in last week's unexpected podcast episode featuring Jan Kramlicek, who built a business around the idea that the robotic identity of artificial intelligence could be reframed into the identity of a domestic house cat. That showed me we don't know who we are anymore. Ubiquitous digital technology has alienated us from our own world, our own identities. Is it any wonder that we have difficulty trusting digital business? After decades of promises of better living through digital technology, skepticism is rising. Among those who have critical questions is Nina Krushvitz, a researcher who edits the Journal of Beautiful
3: Business. Well, I admit to being a bit of a Luddite. I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat wary of technology. I mean, this technology especially. You know, partly because it is created by humans. Um, and humans' intentions and motivations and ability to execute on things can be really flawed. I mean, we really, we're really not great at looking at how things play out over time, you know we're far more attracted to what's shiny and new and right in front of us and and pursuing that with little um thought to the long term yeah, and the the little bit of experience i've had just you know just like with software you know sometimes it's so frustrating to be using a piece of software where i feel like i'm imprisoned in somebody else's mind um Somebody else's mind or some group's mind created this software program, and I'm kind of stuck you know i'm I'm completely at the mercy of how their mind works so um yeah what really what really scares me is ending up in a world <laughs> that's the product of a bunch of i mean I mean face it still mostly white guys um, possibly on the spectrum sitting around in a room in Silicon Valley thinking, you know, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could live forever? (laughs) Um, I mean, that does not appeal to me for one thing. And you know, and for another, it's, it's doubtful and probably impossible that we would include all 7 billion of us.
0: Immortality in the abstract sounds lovely, The thing is, as Nina suggests, the quest for immortality never takes place in the abstract. It has impacts in the real world. The weird combination of emotional abstraction and economic elitism in Silicon Valley is creating the impression of a digital culture that's being shaped by self-obsessed misanthropes. The revolution in digital technology has brought Unprecedented power to an isolated few, but as we watch Jeff Bezos fail to connect to the human beings in the communities around him and witness Elon Musk smoking marijuana while bragging about the results of sleepless nights at work, we see a frightening gap between those who hold power and those who hold wisdom."
3: You know, one of the things that we've talked very little about here—that's uh, sort of eerily compelling—is the idea that computers are developing to the point where they're learning themselves, you know, becoming um, conscious and becoming much smarter than we are, like really, really quickly. Um, I mean, what happens at that point? I mean, would we? Would we know? Would they want us to know or let us know? Would they want to keep us around? <laughs> Would we have to make a case for ourselves? Yeah, there are um, there are all kinds of intelligence, and to be really kind of trite, there's a big difference between being smart and being wise. Wisdom doesn't just come from data and experience. You know, you can be 95 and still not be very wise. It's how you... Um, engage with your internal world and the larger external environment and with everything that's um, you know basically invisible and immeasurable things that we treasure but can't exactly measure or explain, like um, you know love or spirit, emotions, intuition. I don't I don't think that a robot is going to have an intuition. There's a great uh, bit in that Lydia Netzker book um, where the main character talks about the three things robots can't do. Um, It goes something like uh, show preference without reason, which would be called love, Um, doubt rational decisions, which we would call regret, and then trust data from a previously unreliable source, which would be being able to forgive. I'm pretty sure that a world run by an IA without those three capacities would not be that great for humans.
0: It isn't just outside critics who are worried about the tech industry losing touch with human need. People inside digital businesses are also expressing concerns. Among these inside critics is Mark Williams, a leader at People First, a digital company that offers software platforms aimed at aligning the interests of employers
4: and workers. Um, so my name's Mark Williams. Um, I'm the currently I'm uh, head the product team at uh, People First. Um, uh, I, I come from a, a creative background, so I started in uh, in fine art. Actually, I did a degree in fine art, uh, and then. It was more kind of interactive installations and using computers for art, um, which really got me into the technical side. And then I became a developer and came through a kind of development route and then started to go into research. um, And that's really where uh, the, the concept of, you know, how to fix work came up really it's part technical and part kind of sociological that's the so you can't just focus on the software because there's people involved as well and so we were looking at both technological trends and how that might help but also the kind of wider sociological trends and how they intersect
0: fixing work is an admirable goal but it's easier said than done so mark is struggling to find the right balance working in a software company while striving to look for solutions beyond what software can offer.
4: I've got a kind of um, healthy skepticism with big data. Uh, Certainly with, so not all measurement is good measurement. Um, How you wrap it up, how you reward. If you reward based on measurement, then you get, people can game it. We talk about pragmatic people analytics because I think it's very easy to set up metrics and data. There's a, there's a book called The Tyranny of Metrics, uh, which is brilliant on this because, yes, some, some metrics are good, um, but also there's a lot of them which can be gamed, which don't actually help the person who you're, you're kind of um, trying to help in the first place. The more we kind of quantify ourselves as enterprises, not as people, then the closer we're getting to being replaced by a robot, because the amount of humanness that we bring to a situation gets less and less. Well, I'm, not, I'm definitely not a techno-utopian. I don't believe technology will, will fix uh, problems and there are power structures outside and that's why we've done the whole thing with the allowance. There are power structures that live outside of what technology can do that you need to resolve, that you can't just throw software at it and, it, and it'll solve. Um, so yeah, I've got a healthy skepticism for what is possible with software and the dangers of metrics. You've got to be careful. Uh, and it's very easy to throw tech at it and think that's going to that's solve it. And actually, you're dehumanizing the very people you're trying to help.
0: You can't just throw an app at a problem, Mark tells us. But for far too long, that's been the approach of business, both inside and outside Silicon Valley. Who has worked in the corporate world who doesn't have a story about management coming in with a new digital system that's supposed to make work more efficient, but ends up doing nothing but causing alienation and chaos? A catchphrase from a few years ago was, there's an app for that. You don't hear people saying that much anymore. Jamie Stetton of the House of Beautiful Business reflects on her own experience with the vast wasteland behind the dazzling colors of the app store.
5: I think sometimes, and I don't mean this to sound like too much of a criticism, but too many apps to get projects done sometimes. So for instance, I'm going to name a name here, but when people propose sometimes setting up a Slack channel for a project, my initial instinct is always no, please, let's not do that. Um, because I think we're like over-apping our lives to a certain degree, and I think about simplifying processes. And while sometimes apps can help organize, I think sometimes there's just one too many technological solution that, that complicates things rather than streamlines them. So sometimes hmm. it's just, it's just too much. I like it. I, I think it's a good app. I think it's just one more app. You know, it's just one more thing. And I don't know, I still don't know 100% what the, the added value of it is. If you're, if you're all using, you know, your G suite apps anyway, you know, I get it. There's some, you can have lots of different rooms for lots of different things and different channels and you can send files easily, but it's just, it seems a little unnecessary.
0: Slack channels inevitably go slack. Google struggles to maintain user engagement as concerns about the lack of privacy in its cloud apps grows. And so, a new trend in business is to pull back to use digital technology as part of a larger set of business tools, many of which are purposefully kept offline. I spoke about some of these issues with Helene Petersen, a poet and artist in residence at the Danish parliament who has worked with the House of Beautiful Business to radically rehumanize conversations about the struggles of working life. Now before you listen to Helene, I have to admit something to you. With the following recordings of her. I attempted to engage in just the sort of overapping that Jamie and Helene herself have warned me about. I attempted to edit out the noise in the background with an algorithmic filter, but that algorithm actually made Helene sound less natural. It was a mistake. So... You will hear more material in the interviews in this podcast to come that are not perfect. They might have a hiss in the background or a murmur of activity in the environment around us or some other kind of audio imperfection. This is what the edited world excludes. It's what the non-edited world really sounds like. It's the human experience. And as much as we might find it irritating to the ear, an audio connoisseur might reject it. I think that when we eliminate this noise, we also miss out on something essential. I think we try to do too much of this in our digital lives, not just with audio, editing out all the noise, In the hopes of achieving a perfect sound, but it just doesn't work. The noise is reduced, but the result sounds deeply unnatural, much more annoying than the original. So I'm going to try this time to embrace the background noise from my time with Helene and other people that I'm interviewing. Helene and I were sitting by the shore of the river in Lisbon, Portugal, with the sounds of the city and the water around us, cars in the background, people outside enjoying themselves. This might not be as clean as what we might have recorded in a sound studio, but I think it's more her style.
6: So basically, this conference has been about technology and humanity in technology. The ethics of of the AI is also bringing us to the question of ethics of humanity. Like if we are not able to treat each other with compassion, respect, uh, basically protecting each other's lives. Not being agreeing, not being the same. If we want to embrace the future, not with fear, but with trust, we need to start embracing being human. And we need a new space for doing that because right now language is not helping us. On the contrary, we have so many misunderstandings. We're communicating so much due to technology, making the the space for misunderstanding even greater than it has ever been. It's like an explosion of fragility if we are not careful. And that's why we need the space of awareness of being human and recognizing each other's common ground, like what is actually the same for me as for you.
0: Recognizing each other's common ground embracing being human, as I hear Helene say these words, I recognize that much of the debate over artificial intelligence is spoken in intimate, passionate terms, and realize that when we argue about the role of artificial intelligence and other digital technologies in business, we're really talking about something deeper than just a technological issue. This is an issue about a relationship between people that's become abusive and hurtful. When we express our reluctance about the growing role of artificial intelligence in business, we do so with the tone of a jilted lover. The tale of digital automation in business is a tale of unrequited love, Businesses want our loyalty. They seek our passionate attachment, but when we reach out, they ask us to talk to their chatbots. We speak of our fear of being replaced by robots, and in response, business tells us that there will be other jobs for us. What we're really feeling so uneasy about, though, isn't that we won't have jobs to provide for our economic security. It's that business leaders seem to believe that humans can be replaced by algorithms. As customers, as workers, we begin to wonder whether that's all we ever have been to the brands that we have loved. Has our relationship ever been anything more than just a formulaic calculation? Universal basic income is no replacement for being loved.
6: I do believe that our drive to to search for solutions at technology is also the drive to finding answers to existential questions. And my point is, search for these answers in you. Search for these answers in your relation to yourself and to the life that you live while you have it, because you don't have it forever. Developing us further within technology, we're still struggling with the consequences of industrialism. We are basically drying out the Earth's resources due to to industrialism. We have an ocean of plastic flying out there. But that is the consequence of one of our inventions. And now we want to uh, solve that invention by creating another invention. But I think that we will continue to run after ourselves and basically missing the whole point of life, meaning just living life, if we are not conscious of ourselves. And that's where I really hope that this... Color spectrum will prove itself to be the foundation for a new way of being human by reminding us something that we have always known.
0: Helene makes a disturbing observation. We still haven't figured out how to run the industrial revolution without endangering the planet. So what makes us think we can manage the digital revolution without unforeseen consequences? Helene urges us to refocus on understanding the human condition on human terms. Semiotician Martina Olbertova, however, warns that digital technology giants seem to view our humanity as an error in their operating systems.
7: That is basically the thing that pisses me off the most. Like, they're looking at us and saying, we are the glitch in the system because we no longer basically react and work the way that we are supposed to and there's something wrong with people. Whereas, like the, the the whole system the corporations created is fundamentally wrong. We have this gap in between organizations and humanity right now, because people aren't machines, right? You cannot replicate behaviors that you just want consumers to have and everybody will be happy. This is not how we humans work. This is not what we were built on. Then this is not <laughs> this is not like what we should be doing. So I think that it's up to organizations to actually change themselves, to, to mirror what matters to people and what we value rather than for them to recreate us and how we operate. And this fundamental clash in between who has the power is exactly what is at the epicenter of this discussion about business humanity. So we need to make businesses more humane and humanity-driven and informed by meaning and sense and culture and other human principles.
0: It's up to us humans to craft business organizations that are driven by human principles. Can we do this, though, when the tools that we're using to communicate and organize are primarily digital? Designer Scott Dawson echoes Martina's concerns, observing that technological applications in business and in the world in general are replacing social skills, not augmenting them. It's a sober assessment about the future, of a world dominated by artificial intelligence.
8: I started off in a very technical role, but I was promoted to the point where I was managing teams most of the time and kind of really far away from that individual contributor role. And I spent all my day in meetings and, you know, just dealing with people on different levels, professionally, personally, making sure they had everything they needed, making sure they were happy, making sure they had the tools they needed to succeed. It was paradoxical because you spent all this time in school being educated technically, but nobody really sits you down in the technology world and says, here's how you deal with people. And I'm a firm believer, like to be successful in business, whether you're onsite or remote, you have to know how to deal with people, how to meet them where they are, how to build relationships, how to establish trust and that's what makes organizations work is when you have good relationships between people mm-hmm. without that you know when you have distrust it, it it's not an efficient team i'm really concerned about the proliferation of apps that don't seem to serve a purpose to enrich our lives to enrich our relationships to help us offload or delegate things that take up our time so that we can't do other things that are more worthy pursuits. I'm talking about kids walking around on their phones all the time, just kind of lost in their own world. And the argument that they're being social or they're being enriched, I don't think that falls squarely in my head as being a valid argument. I think a lot of the apps that are out there are designed to be addictive. They're designed to line pockets with advertiser money. Um, they're not designed to promote a healthier lifestyle.
0: Are these criticisms unfair, too harsh? They need to be taken in the context of a generation of hype from technological companies that have promised economic opportunity, democratization, less work, greater health, and an all-around better society. On all these terms, Silicon Valley has failed to deliver and in many cases actually made our problems worse. They promised us a digital utopia, and what we got instead was another gilded age, in a time when a very small number of people have gotten very wealthy at the expense of everyone else. So is the tech lash too harsh? Not by half. And keep in mind, Scott's someone who works with technology for a living as are many of the other people you're hearing in this episode. They're not standing on the outside throwing stones. They are in the middle of the storm.
8: I'm kind of in a position with being in my 40s that I I knew a world where we didn't have smartphones. I knew a world where our social contacts were in person and you learn to talk to somebody else and you learn to empathize with somebody else. I think we need to get back there, but I think, I think too much has happened. I don't think we can get back there. We're on this track now where technology, better or worse, is part of the fabric of how we live. I think we can pull the needle back a little bit so that, that we have more of a healthy balance between living a life where we're engaged in the real world, where we're civic-minded, where we're not just out for ourselves, where we're contributing to the betterment of where we live right now, and I th- think the danger is that the generation that's growing up right now doesn't have that context—that that is a—that was a reality. Uh, it is reality in certain places, and it really should be. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much bound up in these devices we hold in our hands. It has changed the way we live. Scott talks about the problem
0: of digital ways of thinking and living, influencing our behavior, reducing the human connection in our lives. Julia von Winterfeld, the founder of SoulWorks, explained to me a mirror image of this concern. She is worried that the problems that have already existed in corporate culture have been magnified by digital technology. Specifically, she is worried about the overlap of problems with gender and problems with technology, both arenas that adopt a masculine bias.
9: We're in danger of putting into this, putting into the technology, programming this technology far more the masculine qualities, um, being more efficient, being more top of game having the best always coming up with the best solution at heart quickly and I can only uh, sort of I only wish for that we not only raise the number of technologists um, from uh, who are female and really ask for their support and uh, give them the opportunity to create together and I also ask that anyone or everyone who is creating new technologies is looking at it from a place of, why am I doing this? And what benefit am I really trying to bring into the world by doing this? Julia
0: has concerns about masculine characteristics of business culture that emphasize competition over a sustainable process. The best solutions in the moment are often harmful in the long run, and digitally optimized businesses win this kind of pyrrhic victory far too often. When your metrics are short-sighted, they miss the larger landscape that a business needs to navigate through. The trouble with these concrete measurements is that they define success in such a tightly circular way that the system becomes blind to risks that lie outside the circle. In the same way, the masculine bias implicit within the digital dominance of business culture isn't recognized by many people working in tech because they've gotten used to seeing masculinity as the default rather than just one of many options. Julia's larger point is that the limited scope of business technology has led to a limited vision of what business can be. Too many businesses are creating technological solutions to make a profit without asking first whether there are really any human problems that call for the solutions they have engineered. Though he's working in an inherently human field, Reinhard Lanner, Chief Digital Officer at the National Tourism Office of Austria shares Julia's concern.
10: I think that the tourism industry is in a very lucky situation because what we were talking in Lisbon uh, about humanity in business about co-creation between the consumer and the producer. That's what tourism always have been. The tourism product has always been about co-creation between the producer, the hotelier, and the visitor and everything. So hospitality, empathy, creativity, some uh, skills which we discussed in Lisbon are fundamental for the tourism business. And like other sectors, the tourism business has developed in a kind of industrial way as well the last 50, 60 years. So we have the big, big companies, we have big travel agencies, and so it's a kind of... uh, like producing a car, you know management and everything that's uh, things where we learn from other technologies, but basically and especially in in uh, the European Alps, we have a very small structure of companies, most of them are family businesses hmm. and family business who are not only thinking about the next three months and the profit but they are thinking for a longer term, maybe for the kids that they can continue. And uh, technology brought us the big, big opportunity that we can connect different of the small companies much easier than we could do this 20, 30 years ago. So I think that we should adapt these technologies, quickly and all the skills we need for that, but they are only the background for doing our business in the front, and the front are all the skills humanity does for us. Sometimes at this conference, it's like Web Summit or so, technology is is the end somehow, and we should think more about using them as a means to create something else, and to that it supports our uh, real business. And that's something I think uh, gets easier Mm. through technology.
0: If Reinhardt is right, and digital technology should be employed as a means to an end rather than an end in itself, then we need to reintroduce the idea that sometimes the best means to the ends that we seek are offline. Jamie Stetton confirms this idea. At times, getting offline is the best thing a business can do.
5: I had this conversation with a friend the other day, and he was saying, wouldn't it be great if there was an app that sort of sent messages to people so you don't have to like keep track or keep up with everyone all the time? And for me, that was like a huge boundary crossing, because what makes, to me, what makes getting a message or sending a message matter that the person who sent it or you know, meant to send it to me, thought about sending it to me and 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 wrote something and, and, and send it to me themselves, the idea that somewhere someone would be automating messages to the people they quote unquote care about, that sort of seems to be like a breach of a boundary. Or a hole in, in humanity if we have to start automating messages to each other to me that takes out all the meaning from communication
0: as I listen to Jamie, my mind goes back to the idea Martin Reeves brought up in the last episode of this podcast. He talked about how biology can serve as a potent metaphor in business. Biologists have shown that a diversity of strategic approaches makes for an overall healthier competitive landscape. In the natural world, there's a place for many different species, even within a specific ecological niche, because they're not all trying to do things the same way. In business today, we have seen a dangerous reduction of strategic diversity with a rush to digitize everything, Just a few big companies are taking up most of the resources for themselves. Business has become ecologically imbalanced. Luckily, Tim Leberecht, author of The Business Romantic, sees the pendulum of business culture beginning to move back toward the center
11: especially after working in Silicon Valley at Frog Design, where I worked for eight years and witnessing the work of my design colleagues and technology colleagues, I did not have a relationship with technology that was by any means problematic. You know, to me, it was sort of a part of life. I took it for granted. If anything, I I admired what people were doing because it was just foreign to me. And then after Silicon Valley, after my, my years in Silicon Valley, I think slowly but surely, I developed a much more conscious relationship to both the the potential, but also the perils of technology. And I think at some point, I became more and more worried about a very myopic belief in technology as the universal panacea, the key to solving every single problem on earth, you know, and what Yevgeny Morozov calls solutionism, which is, I think, a perfect term to describe much of the thinking that is typical of Silicon Valley. And I was worried when I wrote the book, The Business Romantic was very much a response to a uh, almost like a religious belief in the quantification of everything and this idea of wanting to optimize our world and making better by optimizing it, including ourselves, by the way. And and my book and my work was very much as a, meant as a rebuttal to that, uh, wanting to show people that, no, wait a minute, there is, there is actually another world out there, a world of arts, a world of the humanities, a world of the interior soul of that that is inexplicable and not quantifiable. And then I think most recently, actually, a couple of years ago, for a number of reasons, many of which have to do with scandals that occurred, you know, on Silicon Valley's watch, notably the the Cambridge Analytica issue with the, the scandal around Facebook, many other mishaps and developments. I think the the global consciousness has really shifted, and I think the world is now waking up to the idea that well, we you know, Silicon Valley is not the only paradigm in town and it 's time for us to resurrect and, and celebrate a renaissance of other disciplines and other worldviews that balance that purely tech driven solutionism driven view that uh, Silicon Valley as the epitome of technology focused worldview is promoting so I think the pendulum is sh- is swinging back, and I see this I see that the rehumanization of business is a huge trend, more and more voices on the need for you know bringing other disciplines into this conversation the need for a new social contract for really redefining what it means to be human in an age of technology and not just doing that from a technological viewpoint of what's possible but what is actually desirable for us humans and so that is i think that conversation has started a couple of years ago and is now reaching not just the mainstream of business but also i think the the mainstream discourse in our societies in
0: 2018 it has become Impossible for honest people to ignore the pervasive problems in big tech, but Tim sees hope. His idea isn't for an overthrow of all things digital. As Scott Dawson pointed out, such a Luddite revolution seems impossible. How could it be organized without a Facebook group? Digital technology does wonderful things for us. If I sit back and think of all the digital tools that I've used to produce this podcast, It's staggering. There is no way I want to go back to a world where I would have to splice magnetic tape together to edit a show. Researcher and artist Tanya Rodemilans envisions a future in which digital technology gives people in business the freedom to acknowledge the limits of their knowledge and expertise and to follow their passions liberated from these obstacles?
2: I think new technologies are the perfect example of forcing people to really admit they don't know. Um, even with products or devices that you are really familiar with, something is going to be different tomorrow. And you're not going to know how to use something that doesn't even exist today. So the rate of novelty and change that we're experiencing today. Um, and even the fastest pace of the technology changes that we're going to be experiencing in the future, I think it's going to require people to rely on other people and to admit that they just don't know everything. Uh, there's no way you can possibly know everything there is to know. No matter how much experience you have in your own you know, field of work or expertise, including all the simple apps that you use on your everyday life and that you just can't figure out how they work. At least I can. Um, So what technology will allow us to do is to have a lot of the tasks that might get in the way of human interaction taken care of. Um, You know, all the never-ending to-do lists that seem to get in the way of actually taking the time to have a conversation and real understanding of other human beings. And in the kind of work that I do, um, what I see happening and what ideally I would like technology to uh, to do is um, to kind of free people from worrying about the details. Like, is this conversation being properly recorded? Um, are the images being collected? Are the interviews being scheduled at the right times? Uh, you know, uh, all of that, that kind of smaller, um, I would say more admin type tasks. In any given project, technology should be like having a personal assistant of sorts that takes care of a lot of the things that might get in the way of you being able to just sit down for two hours and just think about something. So technology's job should be removing obstacles for us.
0: The key to Tanya's positive vision of a technological future in business seems to be based on an abandonment of the competitive model. People can't compete with computers on their own terms, but we have never derived the greatest satisfaction in our work with mere speed or the ability to store huge amounts of information in our memories. As computers take care of the range of skills they specialize in, Tanya seeks an opportunity for human beings to recapture the particular speciality of our own species, flamboyant creativity.
2: Well, that reminds me of the reason why I brought up photography earlier um, on in our conversation As a technology, uh, digital photography was viewed as a threat and mistrusted by some. But to me, it was a way to remove technical barriers, at least technical barriers that I personally had with uh, cameras. Um, I take a lot of pictures with my phone uh, now and having the kind of technology that gives me the ability to do that with my phone and to do it better and better and more professionally looking every day, that's amazing. Uh, The technology gets better every day, and the lenses get better, and the editing apps are great um, and also a lot of fun to play with. Um, So that has removed a big barrier for me when it comes to photography, because in the past I had a few cameras, but I wasn't really taking that many pictures because um, I was just too um, concerned and too worried about the settings um, and the technical part of it. So the settings felt convoluted to me, and I was spending more time thinking about that than actually taking any pictures. The technical part, I would say, was getting in the way of creating. So what the technology behind digital photography has done for me, and I would say not just as an artist, but as an individual, I think it has touched my life in and helped me in developing my own visual aesthetic and the way I see things as a visual artist, it has given me more freedom, uh, more creative freedom for sure, and more time to focus on what I'm really creating rather than, you know, the way in which the technology actually works. I can see the pictures right away and the result of what I'm doing right away. I can test and experiment more. I can hydrate and take the same picture 20 different ways, from 3 different angles, and then right away just know what's working and what I like about it. Um, And You know, some people might not consider themselves a photographer and they'll never go into that world necessarily professionally because they might think it's scary or it's too complex But now you've created a tool that everybody with a phone in their hands can use and everybody can be a photographer. And I think that's great because you are in a way democratizing an area of knowledge that used to be only for certain people. Um, That's technology at its best, opening up barriers and helping people be able to do more things. And from my point of view, particularly when technology helps you do more things in the creative world, I think that's fantastic.
0: For far too long, people have been treated like machines at work and have suffered in roles that didn't fit their dreams. Merely making money isn't enough because most of our lives are spent in labor, not on vacation. Ironically, the integration of machines at work could finally allow human beings to stop working like machines. At the House of Beautiful Business last year, Carol Golta shared a very personal story about the struggle to find human purpose at work. The example of his father's executive estrangement has shaped Carol's career.
12: It started, you know, when I was already at 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 an early age or young age, probably to being brought up in Switzerland, he always you know, you, you think about how to, you know, you plan ahead a lot. You know, uh, all the retirement, you know, there are four different systems of retirement systems in place to save money for your retirement. in Switzerland. Before that you participate in, okay? So it's like quadruple uh, redundancy. And that makes you, of course, always not be prepared, you know, you have to think, what job are you going to take and then what or you're a job or whatever, you know, you're you planning to have so that you're super safe, and then, that there's no accident basically in your life. So for me, it, 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 it was important that I have a job. Um, and I remember thinking that when I was about 18, 19 years old, I didn't want to get into a midlife crisis like so many people. Actually, I remember my father saying that he he was a a civil engineer, you know, doing bridges and tunnels in Switzerland, super complicated stuff, and he loved to do the calculation for it, you know, but he he became the the, the CEO of of one of these big companies and he hated it because he he wasn't able to calculate and design bridges and tunnels anymore, but he had to, you know, do the number crunching. you know, that was the point where I said, hey, no, that's not. It's also more important, to that you stay at the pace where you want where you still can live your passion. I don't want to, at, at a given point in time, that I have to tell myself when the plane is, is soon hitting the mountain, you know, crashing. You're like, darn, I should have done it differently.
0: Carol. As the CEO of Indeed Innovation seeks to apply these lessons to his firm's work with technology, their designs, he says, are always human first. I have a vision
12: that we need to embrace technology, but not for the sake of technology, but only for the benefit to human. And therefore, I would like to switch this artificial intelligence discussion, which is a technical term, to transform it into an augmented intelligence. This is, I think, a really important aspect. Because if we take, as we did in, in the times before, to really utilize this super powerful, great technology, that it makes us stronger, not dependent, but stronger, more creative, more facing the individual strength of, of each person. I mean, that is a great future at that point, I think. You know, and it's totally okay, I think, as well, that certain jobs will be eliminated, or profession, whatever you want to call that, and it doesn't mean that there will be less work. Okay, but it's, it's, you know, remember Charlie Chaplin, uh, Charlie Chaplin was modern times, right? I mean, that's a stupid kind of work, and we have enough stupid work like that. Even in accounting, of course, we have it, where you go, that doesn't probably help a lot, because it's not something that you utilize the true strength of, of a human being. And it's different with a cab driver, for example, because of course you will eventually have um, self-driving autonomous cars in a city, you know, imagine here in Barcelona, that take you from the airport to the hotel. Totally fine because you know exactly I want to go from here to the airport, but how many times are you talking to a cab driver and, and want to listen from him hey, what is actually the most authentic you know restaurant in Lisbon? right? Would you get that? From Google? No, because Google, or you know, the, the self-driving car, would tell you most likely which one is highest ranked because of whatever. But does it need to be authentic at that point? Hmm, questionable, honestly, hmm. questionable. So they will coexist. Uh, what I don't want though and I have to say that as well, because I think those perspectives are are giving guides to, to, to anticipate the spectrum of what I'm talking, is there are many people saying, oh, wouldn't it be great, you know, no work at all for the people, they can go play tennis, you know, we heard it on Sunday several times, well, then we have time for tennis, right? This is stupid, because work defines us and we define work. And I think um, even dreadful work sometimes is super important because it is the delta to the joyful moment of relaxation. We need this duality, okay? We need contractions and relaxation. You can't have sex all the time. Even if it would be joyful, you would you would lose the sense of that, right? So work is nothing bad, even stupid work sometimes. Okay, that we all do is good, you know, cleaning the house and stuff like that. Sometimes you have to do that. Even ironing, you know, if you do it all the time and that's only your life, that is stupid. But just to to sometimes do hard work or difficult things or so, that is important. Because otherwise, you know, I always see. I'm sure you know that Disney's uh, movie Wally, right? I mean, those Wally people on these floating devices just consuming.
0: Bad future. Carol seems to be arguing that while we should embrace technology, we shouldn't lose ourselves in its embrace. Instead, he challenges us to work counter to the doppelgangers we encounter in the digital field and to work to discover the human experience embedded in what we do. The implication, I think, is that the most important challenge of technology isn't who can race to the top first, who can be fastest, who can be smartest. The challenge is to find our center again. Perhaps what makes us so afraid of technology is that it forces us to face up to the traps we've made for ourselves in our own lives. It confronts us with the image of our lack of fulfillment in our work, a problem that predated the digital age. We want work that is meaningful to us, that makes us feel vital, and we also want to keep the pleasure of plain, ordinary work, not to have it taken away from us by the bots of convenience. As we face the autopilot in Wall E, we need to recognize that it isn't just an external enemy. The ideology, that enables artificial intelligence predates the invention of digital computers. It's been a sore spot on business culture for generations, a shadow in our minds whenever we come to the office. That horrible data-driven vision that can only perceive business technologies as tools of manipulation because it believes deep down that human beings are nothing more than superficial behaviorist routines of habit. We want more than the power of habit. We want to feel vital in our business, staying true to our dignity and purpose, even as we confront the drudgery of everyday work. Artificial intelligence is a shadow of ourselves, a screen upon which we project our fears about the limits of who we are. Technology is a puppet, though, and we need to remember that its voice, no matter how frightening, is really our own. If its voice is that of a monster, a demon without a soul, then where could that voice have come from but within our own minds? Whenever we are talking about technology, we are really talking about ourselves, for good or for ill. Technology isn't just a bunch of objects we invent, humans imagine these objects. They are ideas made manifest. As Martina Olbertova teaches us, technology is ideology.
7: Every technology has its own form of ideology embedded in the way it looks, in the way it works, in the way it functions. Basically, every technology was created and devised by human mind and set of prevailing beliefs about what humans are like and what the reality is like so you cannot have a technology without the embedded bias in it. technology is only an enabler of a transformation or or of, of human evolution it's not what should drive it the human mind should drive it but it should be enabled by technology but i feel that the sort of crisis that we're getting into now is that people started worshiping technology as a sort of, it's almost like a self fulfilling prophecy. It's this idea that we're creating something that's infinitely more powerful and intelligent than us and it, it will lead us into the future. Well, human mind should lead us into the future because we should ultimately be the ones responsible and in control of technology. So I think it's, I think that that the sense is much more important than technology. Technology is just the enabler. It's how new information is structured, but it's the sense that comes out of that technology through applying it to to social problems or or to wicked problems or business conundrums or or something it's the sense that comes out of it that is the the value not the technology the technology is prerequisite of something greater and somehow we appeared in this culture where we embrace how we do things instead of why we do them or what should be the outcome of applying it so that's why we're obsessed with technology that's why we're obsessed with data it's only a path that is supposed to lead us to an outcome. And we're, we're just basically standing with our backs to the outcome, looking at the data, or big data, or the algorithms, or technology, and just worshipping the greatness of something, instead of using it to our own advantage.
0: Martina challenges us to shake off the idolatries of technological ideology and reclaim control for humanity. What cult of technology is stronger right now than the fetish of blockchain, a magical promised land that seems to offer whatever its believers most want to see, though it doesn't quite live up to its promises in the present? Reinhard Lanner is confronting this particular idolatry in his work in tourism.
10: Um, blockchain is... Yeah, is, um kind of a new technology. I don't have an experience personally, but I'm observing it as I observe all the uh, development which is going on. I think at the moment it's a kind of uh, marketing hype on one hand. On the other hand, I think, yes, uh, we are now still working with an internet which is uh, created in the 70s. Uh, with a TCP IP protocol, and so on, and so on. And we are thinking about storing things in central hubs and servers, and so on, and so on. As, As the amount of data is getting more and more and increasing, maybe the method of having a few servers in a center and delivering it from here and there is not the best uh, option for the future. And if we think about data-rich files uh, like music and videos, which will increase in future as well, maybe the technology has to change. And if we think about a when we watch a YouTube video, then that video does not come from one server. The video is, or the film, comes from different servers and is split together. So. I think that uh, storing things in in a network at the end and not in the center, Mm. and connecting things together, so the basic idea of blockchain will be relevant in future. If it is the blockchain technology which we know about today, I do not know, but Uh, I'm very pragmatic with this thing. I don't know really how a car functions or uh, how an aeroplane functions. I'm using it when it's there and when it serves me. So right now, I do not really have an example in the tourism industry where I would say that's only possible with blockchain technology.
0: Who is to say... Blockchain won't live up to the hype eventually. Perhaps it will. The point is that the days of faith in salvation by technology are gone. Chasing after new technological will of the wisps in the hopes that they will deliver us from the conflicts that are inherent in doing business will only lead us deeper into the mire. Now is the time for skeptical inquiry of the claims of the Temple of Silicon Valley. Bhavik Joshi, strategic director at LPK, is helping his clients to see beyond the hype to find the tools they actually need.
13: I'm optimistic about the fact that people who are curious about the human condition and want to understand it in context of certain medium, like technologically assisted medium, mm-hmm. but also want to understand it independent of the context of any medium, will play a much bigger role, a much more influential role in everything that's going to happen in the realm of technology in the future. It's very encouraging uh, and feels kind of rewarding to hear That even the machine learning aspect, you know, of trying to understand data or pictures or words by just understanding more and more of it, it's also being springboarded through the coaching of humanists, of people who understand social sciences, of people who understand imagery, of, you know, anthro experts, of social psychologists and cognitive psychologists experts. And I think all of those. If I, if I may use a very general, broad brushstroke word of these humanities-based inquiry fields, if all of those kind of planted themselves in these in 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 these hubs like Silicon Valley and all of those, and I'm I'm hearing more and more that that's happening. But if that was more prolific, then I think I see a future where. The growth of technology, the evolution of technology to benefit mankind, to benefit humanity, does not happen independent of the understanding of humanity. Right now, it just feels like the invention is happening just because it can. You know, it's kind of like, hey, we can do it, so why not? You know, hey, we, we know how to, so why not? but there's not a much uh, more intentional effort to understand not only the impact of that, but also the cause of wanting to make something happen. Like, why should we do this? who would benefit from it, and how would they benefit, and how would their life be different? So, kind of maybe taking the classic traditional research approach, but not, but not behind the two-way mirrored focus group kind of thing. But I mean, you know, actual investigative human research and infusing that into these technological moonshot aspirations.
0: We began this century, this new millennium with the feeling that we were somehow entering into a kind of technological end time, with an information superhighway and a singularity that would end all our suffering and deliver our heart's desire. Now, as the buzz dies down, we are realizing that things have stayed the same more than they have changed. We can stick a wireless chip into an object and call it smart, but there's more to business intelligence than that. When it comes down to it, the greatest opportunity for business still remains connecting human beings with each other. With the initial thrill of technological development subsiding, business is now learning how to live with digital tools in a long-term, sustainable, healthy relationship. As Bavik points out, the task ahead of us is not to upload everything and make it digital, but to find ways to integrate new technology into vibrant human culture. David Altshul, a specialist in the craft of storytelling in business, reminds us that neither humanity nor technology will be a victor in this conflict. The conflict is too deep not to endure.
14: There are three essential pieces to the story framework, the conflict, the meaning, and the purpose the conflict is the source of energy for the story. It's based on uh, the most fundamental principle of storytelling, which is that without conflict, there is no story. Story starts when the protagonist's world is thrown out of balance for some reason, and a conflict arises that has to be resolved. So the conflict provides the energy and authenticity to the story. Conflict is when I say conflict, I'm talking about some universal human conflict. I'm not talking about a conflict between a good thing and a bad thing. That's not helpful, because the audience knows how that story is supposed to come out. The conflicts that drive stories that go on you know, indefinitely, that don't need to ever end, are conflicts between good things that happen to be opposed, like virtue versus pleasure, which turns out to be the uber-conflict of the food category, or safety versus freedom, or spirited versus sensible. You can see how in any of those conflict pairs, both energies are positive. You say, which would you prefer to be, spirited or sensible? Well, the truth is you have to be both. Which would you give up? Well, you can't give up either. If you were only spirited, you would, you know, fly off the deep end, and if you were only sensible, it would be boring. And I think that is also a quality of the kind of conflicts that drive really Compelling stories is that not only are both energies positive but opposed to each other in some way, but you can see how either energy, if taken to an extreme, would be a bad thing. Freedom versus safety. Which one are you going to give up? If you take freedom to an extreme, you'd be dead fairly quickly. If you take safety to an extreme, your life would be quite boring. And you can't just, it's not about striking a balance. Because if you're half free and half safe, you're really neither. It's about going after both of them a hundred percent, and learning to live in the tension that arises. In fact, of course, that's the reason why we continually tell stories, is to think about and remind each other about ways to deal with these conflicts that can never
0: be resolved. The conflict between technology and humanity, between quantification and qualitative experience, between intellect and emotion, can never be resolved. But by keeping the conflict alive, we can keep our humanity alive. We will use the technologies of Google, but continue to criticize when Google oversteps the boundaries of reasonable behavior. We will limit our use of any single tech giant and regulate them reasonably, bringing them back into the realm of responsible human society when we find the tools to keep technology in its place and work with it meaningfully. Then we will be able to let the tech lash subside and re-engage with digital devices as the enchanted objects that they can be. It will take work of qualitative human researchers to establish these new connections. Anthropologist Tom Machio is on the job.
15: Ground zero for the kind of business that you're talking about. I guess Google knows everything. Google is big data. I mean, Google knows what you know, I suppose. No, they know where you go. They know about all sorts of trends. They measure quantitatively people's searches. You know where they are during the day. You know they know where you are geographically, they have all this data, like Facebook and all the other great media companies. So they still need to know about the human kind of meaning of things. I've done six projects now for Google in an initiative called the Humanizing Digital Project, which is interesting because Google came to me originally wanting to know about kind of the human dimensions of smartphone use. And we did a project called The Meaning of of Mobile. They wanted to know the meaningful grammar of search, Know, what people were searching for and why, and what was the, I mean, they had all the how and, and the what's and what ofs of search. I mean, Google knows everything about search um, in that sense. Um, but they didn't know why and what it was doing for people. They didn't understand the meaningful dimensions of search on smartphones or even what smartphone phenomenology really was. They're a great technical company, data-driven design and engineering-centric, but they felt that for all their studies and quantitative measurements of customer usage of their search engine on mobile devices, uh, the human meanings of what people were up to in all its depth uh, were somehow eluding them.
0: An ethnography of the smartphone is the job for a cultural outsider. Of course, with the pace at which digital culture is developing, We are all outsiders. Even the people who are developing the technology that is the focus of our new cultural practices.
15: You know, everyone was having a smartphone suddenly. Suddenly, I mean, everyone had a smartphone, but what what did that mean? And how do you, uh, you know, what is the business problem? What they're really asking me to do is give them some sense of how people were humanizing their digital technologies. People humanize technologies and all sorts of objects from the get-go. They attribute meaningful dimensions um, to all phenomena they encounter, and humanistic anthropology, which is what I do, is the study of these meanings. They give us permission to suspend disbelief, to daydream. Um, And in the digital world, small objects such as smartphones and tablets share in the symbolism of the small. They spur our imaginations, kind of toys that lend themselves to fantasy and play. And the small and the miniature is the realm of childhood, really. I know people are on Twitter and they're doing all sorts of nasty things to each other there, but, uh, you know, they're also on Instagram and other platforms where they're playing, where there's a kind of craft playfulness there. They're building worlds. They're doing world building uh, through the portal of the small the smartphone. So, what are people doing? What's their their ritual <laughs> that they're engaging in? Uh, you know, when they engage in smartphone play, they're building a dwelling place, a kind of architecture of happiness, that's for themselves. And they're mapping and exploring that space. They're placing an intellectual structure upon reality through play. And in this way, I think bringing the cold objectivity of the world into line with their own inner disposition, inclinations, and desires. So they're they're humanizing the digital space that they're exploring through smartphones.
0: Tom Machio provides a special caution to tech executives who think that they can simply convene a summit of digital industry leaders and crack the secret for how to humanize their businesses. Consumers are already engaged in projects of humanization. And the first thing teams of people at companies like Apple and Amazon need to do is get back out into the world beyond the borders of their corporate campuses to study the cultural revolution that's working with their tools already. One tech company seems to be emblematic of this new human wave of technological adaptation. I'm talking about Trent a company that's all about listening. Trent was founded by Jeff Kaufman, a former television journalist. He founded Trent to solve a functional problem that journalists and other people who do lots of interviews for a living were having trouble with. They were struggling to wade through their interview recordings.
16: The thing that stopped it from going out faster was was. the the process of getting the story assembled. And the slowest part of that uh, process was transcription. If you have uh, three interviews that are 20 minutes each, there's an hour of content you've got to wade through to get the right soundbite, to get the right quote uh, that you can put in the story.
0: Trint is an automated transcription service using machine learning technology, and as such, it's a valuable service. There's no question that the functional need for fast, accurate transcription is real. Nonetheless, solving this functional problem isn't enough of a story to build a brand around. For that, we need to look deeper to find what really motivates interviewers in their work.
16: You talk about the quality of work. Being a stenographer, is first of all not fun. Anybody who knows, uh, who, who's been through that workflow knows that it's just a big pain, it's drudgery, uh, and it doesn't make you a better journalist. I think it's important to know your interview content, to be clear, but it doesn't mean typing out every word. So, you know, what we're doing actually is increasing uh, the quality of work for journalists because you can focus on content creation not stenography and and that's what Trent's really about we're not taking people's jobs away we're liberating people to do their jobs i I think that applied well artificial intelligence in our case uh can liberate it can allow us to, to use our brains for the things that we we can most effectively use them for and that excite us rather than simple uh simply simple drudgery so you know i think that ai which in our case is automated speech to text, when leveraged to an extra level through Trent software, makes work more engaging, it makes work more interesting, and it makes work more productive. Those are all good things. Those are not evils of technology. Those are liberating things.
10: The
0: more Jeff Kaufman talks about what Trent can do, the more clear it becomes that just getting a quick and accurate transcript isn't at the heart of what the company's software does. The underlying human need is to give journalists the space to engage more with their interviews, rather than to pull back from them by spending less time worrying about typing. Researchers who use Trint can spend more time thinking about the material they've gathered. Trint is an instructive model for the future of digital technology because it didn't begin with a technological solution in search of a problem. Trint began with a functional need that it then developed to address a core human need, the need to connect. Then a technological solution was applied. The result is that when a person uses Trint, it's the interview material that's elevated rather than the technology that assists in its processing. Maybe, as Jeff Kaufman suggests, technology isn't really a competitor to humanity and business. Perhaps what digital technology is doing is challenging us to step up and do the quality of work that we've always dreamed of. If technology is, as Martina Olbertova says, an ideology, Perhaps we can leverage the human ability to live within ambiguity, to dynamically thrive within the conflict, as David Alchul suggests, all successful characters in good stories do. Mark Williams of People First foresees a future in which technology fades, the more powerful it becomes.
4: The, the bits where automation won't touch for a long time are the ones where it's about face-to-face interaction, creativity, you know. That's where, we'll, that's where we should thrive. Having, you know, so the enabling technology that takes all the other stuff out of the way allows me to just be free and engage in what me as a human does best rather than thinking, uh, I'd like to do a spreadsheet. The automation will take those bits away... I think the humor bit comes in is to, we're looking for creativity in the widest sense to solve, you know, we're gonna have robots to solve efficiency problems. The really big problems are human problems.
0: The really big problems are human problems and technology problems are human problems. Technology doesn't create problems for humans. It amplifies the problems humans have always had just as it amplifies our positive abilities. As the power of technology increases, it's time that we increase the positive power of our humanity to match it. To do that, we have to build visions of purpose for what we want to do with technology. We cannot outsource this work because worthwhile vision only comes through human experience. People in business need new skills to meet the digital age, and I'm not talking about learning how to code. I'm talking about learning how to break the code. We need human methods to enable a new kind of vision quest to discover what our place can be in the digital world. I said at the beginning of this episode that we would be talking about technology. What we've learned, though, is that Whenever we're talking about technology, we're really just talking about physical representations of the weird, subjective, emotional issues that we have as human beings. No matter how technological business gets, it's still thoroughly human. The future is human. That's the topic of next week's episode of This Human Business. We will be talking about competing visions, of what the future of business might be. Of course, that's in the future. Until next week, be in the present. I want to thank all the people who agreed to be interviewed for this episode. And I encourage you, the listener, to go and seek them out. Each one of them is doing remarkable work in the movement to humanize business. If you are enjoying this podcast, please go to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform you're using and give it a rating, however many stars you like. This will help the podcast to reach more people and maybe it'll help expand a mind or two. The music you're hearing now and what you heard at the beginning of the episode is from the artist Meidan. On the album For Creators, the name of the song is Underwater. Oh, and hey, there's a website where you can read all the transcripts for this podcast, this episode, and the others. It's a simple website. ThisHumanBusiness.com